Um, thanks to Austin and to Gleaves and Mandy and everyone else uh, for hosting this great event and, and having me be a part of it. Um, I wanted to start by offering an alternative title for my talk, um, from the one that's in your program. Uh, uh, in the program, it's um, uh, The Biggest Legacy, uh, Bush's Federal Court Appointments. And if, if I'm remembering this right, uh, uh, when Gleaves first invited me to be a part of this uh, uh, way back, a, a while back, um, it was a title that he had suggested, or maybe Mark Rizal had suggested, um, and I wasn't 100% convinced, right? And so the title kind of gives a lot away, which is greatest legacy. Although there is that question mark there in the title, um, so I went along with it. Um, uh, but in the wake of last week's election results, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer a, a new title um, for my uh, preliminary assessment of uh, Bush's federal appointments, federal judicial appointments, and that is uh, one vote short, right? One vote short, and here's why. Um, for a generation, uh, for longer than I've been alive, in fact, um, Republican presidents have tried to remake the Supreme Court. Uh, this started with President Richard Nixon, whose 1968 campaign um, included uh, frequent denunciations of war and court decisions, particularly in the areas of civil rights and school desegregation. Uh, the effort uh, picked up steam and escalated with Ronald Reagan, who uh, not only uh, attempted to make several transformative appointments uh, to the Supreme Court, but also implemented an unprecedented program of ideological evaluation of judicial nominees throughout the federal bench as well. Um, it continued through uh, the first President Bush, suffered an eight-year interruption under President Clinton, and then resumed under our current president. Um, uh, over the past uh, 41 years, Democratic presidents have appointed two Supreme Court justices. Right? Uh, over the past 41 years, just two from Democratic presidents. The rest have all been from Republicans, and it's, just, it's been, re been this remarkably sustained effort to remake the federal courts uh, in, in uh, the image of the Republican Party. Now, um, despite that effort, the judicial revolution sought by these Republican presidents has not come to pass, I want to argue. Um, I, I'll fill in the details a little bit. I, on a wide range of legal conflicts, a wide range of constitutional disputes, um, in, uh, they have uh, pushed the law rightward, um, uh, but not so far as they wanted it to go. Right. Um, uh, they have uh, on uh, on a wide range of constitutional disputes, including some of their top constitutional priorities. They remain one vote short on the Supreme Court, and given the vote last week, um, they're not going to get that next vote uh, at least any time in the next four years. And if it starts to become a little more speculative now, but if Barack Obama's presidency turns out to be a reconstructive one, right, the, the kind of presidency that political scientists describe as one that, that remakes the political order, brings a new governing majority to power, if, we don't know for sure yet, if that comes to pass, if Obama serves a second term, then we will look back on 2008 as the peak of the GOP's control of the judicial branch, after which it suffered a long, slow decline. Um, now, if I had more time, uh, one of the things I, I would do today is tell you uh, a little bit of the story of, of Bush's um, lower court appointments, right? Uh, uh, you know, we all know about John Roberts and Samuel Alito, but there's been a remarkable series of political conflicts over the past eight years regarding appointments to the federal appellate courts as well. Um, and uh, Bush has appointed um, about a third of our sitting federal appellate judges, and the numbers are similar at the trial court level, about a third. And if you count them up together with the uh, remaining Republican appointees from his father and from President Reagan as well, um, a clear majority of the federal bench, uh, a, a, 
approaching but not quite at two-thirds, um, has been appointed by Republican presidents. Um, uh, nonetheless, Democratic senators did manage to uh, throw up some roadblocks in, this, in front of this effort. Um, uh, uh, about 20 of Bush's appellate court nominees uh, have been blocked by the Senate, um, a big handful of those uh, because Democratic senators included that those uh, nominees were uh, simply too extreme, too ideologically extreme, and, and they stood their ground, and despite a fairly strong effort by President Bush, uh, the Democratic senators uh, managed to keep them off, and another big handful of those 20 simply had the, had the misfortune of being nominated uh, late in President Bush's uh, lame duck second term, where Democratic senators, as as, uh, as the Senate has always done in advance of a presidential election, um, they have slowed down the confirmation process in the hopes that they could preserve some of those vacancies to be filled instead uh, by the next president. Um, if I had time, I'd tell you more about that story. It's a fascinating story, and if people have questions about it, I'm happy to talk a little bit about it. In the limited time that I have, what I want to do instead is focus on the Supreme Court, right? Focus on uh, John Roberts and Samuel Alito and the degree to which um, the degree to which these appointees, which sh surely are among President Bush's most significant legacies, right? John Roberts and Samuel Alito are both in their 50s. They are both, uh, you know, assuming they're they remain healthy, right? They're both likely to be on the Supreme Court for quite some time, um, long outliving uh, the administration itself. Um, uh, but the, the, the interesting and significant question is to what extent these appointees, together with the other justices who they have joined, have, uh, have, uh, have remade the court, right? And, and to offer a preliminary evaluation of that, again, they're going to be there for a couple decades. We don't know the extent to which they will remake the court. But to offer a preliminary evaluation, I thought what it might be helpful to do is run through um, a couple of the key, key, uh, key victories and defeat uh, on the Supreme Court uh, uh, during the Roberts era, uh, three years so far, um, from the perspective of, of three main constituencies of the Republican Party, right? So social conservatives, economic conservatives, and foreign policy conservatives. And let's real briefly consider um, what each of these groups has gotten from the Roberts court. Now, um, let's take social conservatives first. Um, they've, uh, now, of course, uh, from its beginning, the modern social conservative movement has defined itself uh, in significant part uh, as an effort to reverse objectionable Supreme Court decisions, right? Decisions like Roe versus Wade have been a key target uh, of the modern social conservative movement. And over time, this movement has developed an increasingly sophisticated litigation network uh, to pursue this effort. Um, this network of social conservative lawyers, both inside and outside the administration, um, has indeed won several notable cases during the Roberts era. Um, they successfully defended the president's faith-based faith initiative program against a constitutional challenge alleging that it violated the separation of church and state. Um, they helped defend the Solomon Amendment, a federal law which preceded the Bush administration but was strongly supported by it, um, which requires colleges and universities to offer equal access to military recruiters, the same access that they give the other employers, a policy that some colleges object to because the military's uh, exclusion of gays and lesbians is inconsistent with the college's own non-discrimination policies. Uh, but Congress enacted a law, Bush vigorously enforced it, and the Roberts Court upheld the law, right? So working together, those three institutions have forced uh, colleges nationwide to comply. Um, social conservatives also 
um, helped, uh, 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 also were happy when the Roberts Court rejected a constitutional challenge to a federal child pornography law that was signed by President Bush in 2003, and um, uh, uh, also when the court rejected a constitutional challenge to the partial birth abortion bill that was signed by President Bush in 2003. Right, the list could go on, right? There's a, there's a, a number of victories on this court um, for social conservatives. Um, uh, uh, two others that I would mention um, are um, the court's approach to race-conscious affirmative action policies, right, where um, in a series of, in a, two, a pair of 2007 decisions, the court um, uh, ruled that uh, public school districts cannot adopt race-conscious school assignment plans. Um, and perhaps the biggest victory um, uh, for social conservatives on the Roberts Court was District of Columbia versus Heller, the Second Amendment decision um, from just this year, uh, from last summer, um, striking down the handgun ban in Washington, D.C. on Second Amendment grounds. Now, most of these decisions represent clear examples in which the Bush appointments produced an immediate change in the law. Not all of those ones I just mentioned, but most of them represent clear examples in which the Bush appointees produced an immediate change in the law. In other words, the replacement of Rehnquist and O'Connor with Roberts and Alito produced an immediate shift in the law. Now, Rehnquist was already pretty conservative. O'Connor, so his replacement with Roberts doesn't produce too many shifts. Uh, O'Connor was famous as the court's swing justice. Her replacement with Alito produces a number of immediate shifts. Consider the abortion and school desegregation cases, each of which was decided by a five to four vote. In each case, Alito voted differently than Sandra Day O'Connor would have. We know this for certain because each decision departed pretty dramatically from a recently decided precedent that was closely associated with Justice O'Connor. Um, and each decision was announced in a majority opinion that marked the culmination of a sizable conservative shift from where the law stood, say, 20 years ago. Um, so clearly some victories for the social conservative movement, uh, conservative litigators in the culture wars, if you will. Um, even so, I would argue um, that the revolution that those, that, that those supporters of President Bush, the judicial revolution that they've been seeking has not yet come. Uh, for one thing, they've lost some cases as well. Um, there's a few examples here. The most notable one was the Roberts Court's definitive rejection of Attorney General Ashcroft's effort to prevent the enforcement of Oregon's Death with Dignity Act. Oregon at the time was the only state that had a law allowing physician-assisted suicide Washington has now legalized it as well. Um, uh, Attorney General Ashcroft uh, launched a vigorous effort to prevent Oregon from enforcing that law. Um, the Supreme Court turned that effort back. Uh, so, so there's been some defeats as well. Even more importantly, the victories that social conservatives have won on the court have in important ways been incremental rather than sweeping. Uh, in the partial birth abortion decision, Kennedy's opinion for the court clearly shifted the law to the right but he went out of his way to characterize the shift as a small step with limited practical effect. In the school desegregation case, Chief Justice Roberts tried to implement a more dramatic shift toward the colorblind constitution that conservatives have long called for, but Kennedy refused to join him. Kennedy writing, wrote a separate and narrower opinion that deprived Chief, Chief Justice Roberts of a majority. The most far-reaching decision, as I've mentioned, uh, for social conservatives was the gun control case, D.C. versus Heller. Um, that decision uh, reversed a 70-year-old precedent from the Supreme Court and unsettled a legal understanding that in many ways dated back 200 years. It did so to adopt a reading of the Second Amendment that has been a key theme in the contemporary culture wars. Even here, though, it's too soon to say how far this change will go. Scalia wrote the court's opinion in that case, and Scalia took pains to indicate that while the District of Columbia's uh, total ban on handgun possession uh, went too far. Um, he went out of his way to indicate that most 
other state and local gun control laws, which are narrower in scope, are probably constitutional. Um, in some, social conservatives have certainly had some success before the Roberts Court, but given their transformative goals, there remains a good deal of dissatisfaction regarding the limited progress to date. Social conservatives have in general been very happy with Roberts and Alito, but dissatisfied with the degree to which Roberts and Alito have m managed to control the court. In other words, they remain extremely dissatisfied with Anthony Kennedy, uh, who continues to have the court's deciding vote. Um, uh, economic conservatives. Now, there's a long line of argument um, dating back to the Reagan years, uh, suggesting that Republican elites have exploited the votes of working class social conservatives to win office, but have then used their power almost exclusively to enact a conservative economic agenda. Uh, and along these lines, some early analyses of the Roberts Court, including an influential article by Jeffrey Rosen, um, suggested that its key accomplishments were legal victories for the Chamber of Commerce. Right? These cases tend to get somewhat less attention than the polarizing culture war disputes like abortion, gay rights, and the like, um, but their practical impact is no less significant. Um, I, I don't have time to say a lot about these cases, which, again, tend to be somewhat less well-known. Um, uh, the best known of these cases is probably Lily Ledbetter's case. Uh, Barack Obama mentioned it in, in the third presidential debate. Uh, with John McCain in response to a question about the Supreme Court and abortion, Obama pivoted. He said a word or two about abortion, and then he pivoted and he said, uh, and it was a good answer, I thought, he said, you know, the court is important on other issues as well. Let me give you an example, case of Lily Ledbetter. Um, Lily Ledbetter filed an equal pay suit against her employer um, because upon her retirement, she discovered, because somebody sent her an anonymous note, she discovered that male employees in her same position had long been paid more than she had, and so she went to court alleging violation of uh, federal civil rights statutes uh, guaranteeing equal pay based on gender. Um, she made her way to the Supreme Court where she lost. Alito wrote the court's opinion in a five to four decision dismissing her case um, because it had not been filed, her complaint had not been lodged within 180 days of the original discriminatory salary determination, i.e. the first time her employer paid her less on the grounds of gender, she had six months to complain. Well, as Justice Ginsburg pointed out in dissent, um, salaries in uh, virtually every private uh, workplace in the country are confidential, and it is quite often the case that female employees are unaware that their male colleagues are being paid more than they are. Nonetheless, she was out of luck, uh, on, uh, according to Justice Alito and the five conservative justices. Um, that's probably the best-known example. There are a bunch of others. There are um, the, the Roberts Court has imposed strict, requi strict requirements on when investors can fire shareholder suits alleging Enron-type accounting and securities fraud. Uh, the court has closed off a number of product liability suits, in, uh, you know, suits seeking harm, seeking compensation for harm caused by uh, medical devices, cigarettes, uh, pharmaceuticals, and the like. Um, in particular, the court has, on a couple of occasions, held that state tort claims, state lawsuits, uh, seeking compensation for such harms, are preempted by the less restrictive uh, regulatory regime at the federal level. The court has also imposed strict constitutional limits on the amount of punitive damages juries can award to punish egregious corporate behavior, most famously in the Exxon Valdez case, where the court uh, cut the award to 10% uh, of what the jury had initially uh, given to those who are harmed by the oil spill off the coast of Alaska. You get the idea. Um, these cases involve a wide variety of different legal claims, uh, uh, and to go through their actual details is, is quite complex, uh, and there are meritorious arguments 
arguments in support of many of these decisions, um, but the, the, the practical result, that, that sort of takeaway, the practical result of all of them taken together has been to protect corporate defendants against lawsuits filed by aggrieved workers, consumers, and shareholders. Um, so, again, lots of victories uh, for economic conservatives on the Roberts Court. Still, though, once again, I would not want to overstate the shift. Uh, take the Ledbetter case. This came down last year in May of 2007, and it sparked an immediate congressional response. Uh, congressional Democrats immediately picked up on Ginsburg's dissent, complained about this decision, argued that the court was misinterpreting federal civil rights law as intended by Congress, and in fact, as had long been interpreted by the EEOC and most lower courts as well. Um, and they introduced a bill, the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, Fair Pay Act to reverse it. Um, earlier this year, it was successfully filibustered by Senate Republicans, uh, but both Obama and Hillary Clinton uh, spoke out in support of it. Um, it has, there's a reasonably strong chance it's going to become law uh, in the coming year under the Obama administration. Um, and in the meantime, the court seems to have backed down from its aggressively conservative reading of federal civil rights law. In the court's most recent term, the term that ended last June, so the term following the Ledbetter decision, by which point this congressional response was already quite clear, uh, the court heard five employment discrimination cases, and they sided with the employee plaintiff in all five of them. And it's hard to interpret this as anything other than judicial backtracking in the face of congressional criticism. Um, likewise, the court's record on environmental regulation has been somewhat equivocal. Um, there was one widely noted case adopting a restrictive interpretation of the Clean Water Act, um, with Scalia's opinion for the court um, uh, denouncing the enlightened despots. That's a quote of the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, uh, and so the court, you know, again, victory for the Chamber of Commerce, uh, 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 imposing a more restrictive, uh, imposing a restrictive reading on the reach of the Clean Water Act. Um, but this was yet another one of those cases where Kennedy was in the majority but refused to quite go along and wrote his own separate opinion that limited the reach of the conservative holding. And in the court's next major environmental case, Kennedy jumped ship altogether, joining the liberals to reject the administration's argument that EPA lacks authority under the Clean Air Act to regulate automobile emissions in order to address global climate change on this highly salient public issue. In a case where the administration's lawyers aggressively defended the actions of an executive agency, actions that themselves represented a direct expression of clear administration policy, the court rebuked the administration on every front. Um, to take just one example from Justice Stevens' opinion in this case, Massachusetts versus EPA, Stevens noted uh, EPA's argument that climate change raises important foreign policy issues and it is the president's prerogative to address them. Stevens noted that argument and responded that the president does indeed have broad authority in foreign affairs, but that authority does not extend to the refusal to execute domestic laws. Um, and in so holding, Stevens alluded to yet another ongoing constitutional conflict in the Roberts era, one we've already heard some about, about today uh, from Professor Fisher, and that is the, uh, regarding the administration's repeated assertions of unilateral executive authority, um, not just in the wartime context, although particularly in the wartime context, which brings me very briefly um, to the third uh, Republican constituency, um, foreign policy conservatives, and what have they gotten from the court? Uh, in many ways, they've been even less successful than social and economic conservatives. Uh, I've got to give that a caveat. 
Um, the court tends to get involved with foreign policy only at the margins, right? I mean, the court is not uh, making fundamental decisions that determine the direction of American foreign policy. The court is not going to decide whether the war in Iraq has to stop tomorrow or not. Um, the court gets involved in these issues only at the margins, but where the Roberts Court has gotten involved, it has repeatedly, repeatedly um, uh, rejected administration arguments that represent one of the central constitutional priorities of this administration. Uh, we heard from Professor Fisher this morning uh, about uh, about the Hamdan case, and, and then um, uh, we heard at least briefly about the Boumediene case, which was this year's follow-up, in which even where the Republican Congress, pre-2006, um, even where the, the fall 2006 Republican Congress supported the president in an effort to create a wholly separate system of uh, military tribunals to, to try enemy combatants and to de deny those enemy combatants appeal to the civilian courts, Supreme Court, with Kennedy's deciding vote, says, no, you can't do that. Right? You can't do that. Um, now, um, uh, to sum up, um, uh, the Roberts Court has despite President Bush's uh, uh, influential and significantly conservative appointees, John Roberts and Samuel Alito, um, the Roberts Court has remained willing on occasion, on repeated occasion, to act independently of the administration's wishes, uh, again, in large part due to Justice Kennedy's vote. Um, still, I think it is fair to say that the court has most of the time been a reliable ally of the governing Republican regime. Um, and from this perspective, the court's role in the political system is just now undergoing an important shift. Um, from here on out, once Obama takes the oath of office on January 20th, from here on out, the court will find itself in a position of opposition to the governing regime. President Obama uh, may make as many as three appointments in his first term, but it, those appointments are very likely to... Uh, to replace sitting liberal justices, right? Stevens, Souter, and Ginsburg are widely rumored as the next to retire. Um, as such, the balance of power on the court will remain more or less the same, with four solidly conservative justices and one sometime conservative justice, Anthony Kennedy, we can expect this court to throw some significant roadblocks in front of the newly ascendant democratic regime. Like the nine old men the FDR confronted in the early 30s, the Roberts Court remains committed to a governing philosophy and coalition that the people have now repudiated. Or to take an earlier example, it remains, it potentially remains, what newly elected President Thomas Jefferson characterized as the last battery from which the defeated opposition will retire to continue the partisan struggle. If history is any guide, the court will not win this battle. The engine of constitutional change will shift from the court to the White House. Uh, Barack Obama has not said a lot about where he'd like to steer this engine of constitutional change, but if the court provokes him, he is likely to embrace the mantle of reconstructive leadership, to challenge the court for misreading our fundamental constitutional commitments, and to call on the people to help him push the court into a new day. Thank you.